is just a quick message to let you know that Elucidations now has a blog. Check it out at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. Check it out. Let us know what you think. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I am Jamie Edwards. And I'm Mark Hopwood. We are joined today by David Enoch, Professor of Philosophy, and Jacob I. Berman, Professor of Law at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And he is with us today to discuss metaethics. Professor Enoch, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Most of us have some sense of what the study of ethics involves. How should I live my life? What are the right and wrong things to do? How should we act in the world? And so on. What exactly is metaethics? So you've given a good initial list of questions in ethics or moral philosophy. So when we're doing ethics, we're trying to answer these questions. When we're doing metaethics, we're not exactly trying to answer these questions. We're trying to reflect about these questions and about the answers to them. So we can ask questions such as, Do the questions of ethics that you've just mentioned, do they have answers? If they do have answers, what do these answers depend on? Do they depend on us, say, or in a divine will? What kind of answers do we get? Are they objective in some sense? And if so, in in what sense exactly? Do they vary across cultures or persons or eras? Furthermore, we can ask questions that are really just particular instances of general philosophical questions only applied to the moral domain. So when you're doing other parts of philosophy, say when you're doing epistemology, you may be asking questions such as, what do we know and how do we know it and how are beliefs justified and which beliefs are justified? So when you're doing metaethics, you may be doing moral epistemology. You may be asking, do we ever have moral knowledge? If so, how? How do we justify moral judgments and beliefs and so on? Similarly, when you're doing metaphysics, you may ask questions such as, what exists in the world and what's the ultimate nature of the stuff that's there in the world. If you're doing metaethics, you might be doing moral metaphysics or the metaphysics of morals, asking such questions as, for instance, are there moral entities, things like duties or rights or values or rules or norms? And if there are such things, are they a part of the very nature of the universe? What exactly is their nature? Similarly, when you're doing philosophy of language, you may be asking such questions as, um, what words have what meanings and in virtue of what. So when you're doing metaethics, you might be doing the philosophy of moral language, asking such questions as what's the meaning of ought or good and in virtue of what does ought refer to this or that? Does good refer to this or the other thing? So it's a whole host of questions. One of the reasons I think metaethics is so cool is that it's, it really does combine questions in many other parts in philosophy. So. Some of us are suspicious of interdisciplinary projects. It's not an interdisciplinary, it's, it's kind of an inter-subdisciplinary project. In order to do metaethics well, you have to do, or at least be competent in, many philosophical subdisciplines. So it's cool. That's really helpful, thank you. It's always good to know why a particular area of philosophy is not just interesting, but cool. Yes, <laughs> that's right, very important. So maybe it'll, it'll help to get a sense of 
where you're positioned in the various debates within metaethics. So your position has been described as a form of robust realism, also described by others, and I think by yourself as stark, raving moral realism. So maybe you could just very briefly give us a sense of what that means. What does it mean to describe yourself as a robust or stark, sure. raving realist? Sure. Actually, just for accuracy's sake, I think that the term stark, raving realism is a term that Peter Railton applied to his own realism. And I criticize him for not going far enough. <laughs> so I'm a bit more than just stark, raving. Anyone can be just stark, raving. Okay. So, of course, isms are tricky, and it's not completely clear how to understand realism in metaethics. But perhaps the following would be a good start. You may think that moral judgments are, say, somewhat similar to witch judgments. We can talk about witches. Some people used to, I guess. Some people probably do. Some people believe in these things. But most of us believe that witch talk is systematically erroneous. There's a serious ontological error pervading the discourse. It is committed to the existence of witches. There are no such things. Maybe there cannot be such things. So pretty much all of which discourse is mistaken. Now some of it, maybe some of the statements within it are false, maybe some are not exactly false, but anyway not true. Maybe some are trivially true, right? Like the statement, there is no witch in this room right now. That would be true uh, simply because there are no witches at all. So it's kind of a, an empty or vacuous truth. So some people think that something similar can be said about morality. Well, if you think that, you don't qualify as a moral realist. That seems fairly clear. <laughs> Some other people think, or anyway used to think, that moral judgments are really just ways of expressing emotions. So saying something like, humiliation is wrong, would be on such a view analogous to saying something like, humiliation, boo, or humiliation, yuck, or something like that. So if you think that this is all that moral statements come to, you are not a moral realist. Notice that if that's what you think, you don't think that moral judgments are false. And you don't think that they're true either. They're just not in the business of being either true or false. They're doing something else altogether. So at a minimum, if you want to join us realists, you have to believe that moral judgments are in the game for being true or false. And that some of them are true, that there's not this extremely wide, fully wide systematic error pervading the discourse. Uh, but this kind of view is still consistent with many, many views that not all of them are that realist. For instance, you may be a subjectivist of sorts. You may think that, sure, there are moral truths, but all it is for it to be the case that humiliation is wrong is for us to disapprove of humiliation, or maybe at the extreme for me to disapprove of humiliation. We shouldn't worry about words, least of which technical terms, right? So it really doesn't matter whether we call such a view realist or not. But it's certainly not fully objectivist, and most of us who are realists want to achieve more by way of objectivity than this kind of view. So now we can proceed, as it were, on a continuum of stronger and stronger realist views. You may think that there are fully objective uh, moral truths, moral propositions, moral facts, moral properties. And if you think that, then it seems like you're a realist, though you still owe us an account of what exactly their objectivity comes to. Another topic that's in the vicinity here is the nature of moral facts. So you may think that there are moral facts, but that's just because really at bottom they come down to perfectly ordinary, non-moral, not even evaluative facts. 
or as we sometimes say, you may think that moral facts are naturalistically reducible. They just are something that can be fully specified without moral language at all. So for instance, um, most of us believe that universities exist. But there's nothing that mysterious about it, right? If you ask, well, what is it for a university to exist, you'd probably say something about, I don't know, some buildings, some institutional settings, some procedures, some formal accreditation, some, you know, should be some people probably thought of as professors, some probably thought of as students, things like that. If you've got all that, you don't think that the remaining question, ah, but where is the university, makes much sense. You think that you've just, that is what a university is, you've just shown us that. So you, you may ask an analogous question about moral facts. Uh, some of us think that humiliation is wrong, and then you may say, well, look, well, why is that? And then you may describe all sorts of things about humiliation, how it makes people feel, what kind of effects it has in the world, the history it has, some other things. And then you may ask, well, okay, I understand all that, but is it wrong, or where is its wrongness, or what does it wrongness consist in? Some people think that asking these remaining questions is just as ill-conceived here as it is in the university example. So they believe that humiliation is wrong it just comes down to some things like how it makes people feel or what effect it has in the world or some other thing of the sort. If you think that, you're a kind of an ethical naturalist. You believe that the moral facts really just are at bottom perfectly natural facts. What robust realism comes to is realism of the kind we mentioned earlier plus the denial of that. So it's not like the university case. There are moral facts and they are not reducible to natural facts. They are distinct, they are of a very different kind. So robust realism is what I like to think of as an ontological or metaphysically heavy view. It's committed to the existence of these further things, moral objects or anyway properties, things of the sort. And that's also why it's considered crazy by some. <laughs> Great, thank you, that's very helpful. So there's a whole constellation of different views there that we, we won't be able to get into. But it seems like from what you've said, if I'm a robust realist, then when I say humiliation is wrong, first of all, I take myself to be saying something that's true or false. Mm -hmm. I'm really trying to state a fact that that thing that I said is gonna be true or false in virtue of something that exists mm -hmm. in the world, but there's true. something in the world that makes it true, or the absence of that thing in the world would make it false. And that thing in the world is not something that's kind of part of the natural world. That's true. Um, it's going to be something that is, well, some people are going to say, kind of weird, or, or something different, something that's beyond just tables and chairs and buildings and people. There's something out there that exists. That's the view. That, that makes my statement true or false. So maybe we could get into one of the reasons people have thought we should resist this. So you talk about a philosopher, Gilbert Harmon, who has an objection to realism. And he asks us to imagine a case where you see a group of children setting a cat on fire. Um, and you say to yourself, that's wrong. And Harmon says, what do we need to say to explain you're saying to yourself, that's wrong. And it seems like all we need to explain that is certain facts about your upbringing, the kind of culture you're in, maybe certain emotional facts about you. Once we've said all of that, once we've talked about your upbringing, your culture, your emotional makeup, we've said all that we need to say to explain your belief that this burning of the cat is wrong. The one thing we don't need to talk about is some kind of 
fact out there in the world that your belief is sensitive to or responsive to. So according to the principle that you know, we should never posit the existence of things that aren't necessary to explain the phenomena, we don't need to talk about moral facts. We can explain everything we need to explain without them. So how do you respond to that kind of challenge? Right. So I accept the general, probably methodological requirement that we shouldn't believe in any kind of entities unless we need them in some sense. So I'm with Harmon on that. But then there are two obvious strategies that suggest themselves of how to respond to Harmon's challenge. One would be to say that we actually do need moral facts in order to explain all sorts of things. And there are many people who, who have tried to go down that route. So you may think, for instance, that a part of what explains the collapse of the Soviet Union was that it was unjust. Now, there's a lot of stuff that can be said here. Nothing here is uncontroversial. I mean, to begin with, it's not clear that it was unjust. And even if that's so, it's not clear that that's a good explanation, let alone the best explanation of its collapse. So we can say a lot of things. And we may also wonder about the relation between this explanation and other explanations in terms that are not moral and that perhaps in some sense are more basic. So there's a whole debate about the term in, which is moral explanations, whether moral facts do in fact play an appropriate role in the best explanation of some natural phenomenon, and if so, uh, does that suffice to justify belief in their existence? But that's not my way. So I'm happy to grant Harman, at least for the sake of argument, that we do not need moral facts in order to explain. I think that we need moral facts or perhaps facts of some wider class that we can talk about in a minute. I think we need them not in order to explain anything, but for some other purposes altogether. Uh, we need them in order to deliberate. And I, in my argument for this kind of robust realism, I make a big deal out of the thought that the needs of deliberation are not in any way less respectable than the needs of explanation. So if something is needed for explanation, if something is, as we sometimes say, explanatorily indispensable, that can justify ontological commitment. That can justify us believing that it exists. That's how we justify beliefs in electrons. That's how we justify beliefs in some other things, maybe mental states. And I don't think that that's how we justify our belief in the existence of moral facts. They are needed for deliberation. They are deliberatively indispensable. And I think that arguments from deliberative indispensability are at least initially just as respectable as arguments from explanatory indispensability. So could you say just a bit more about what you mean by deliberation? I, I'm taking this to mean when I'm deciding what action I should do, what course I should take, and say something more about indispensability as sure. well, why a moral fact would be indispensable for my deliberation. Sure. So deliberation is the process in which we sometimes decide what to do, but it's important not to exaggerate things. I think the vast majority of our actions are performed without deliberation at all. So you just pulled up the mic closer to your mouth in order to ask the question. You didn't wonder, well, what should I do so that my voice is heard better on the podcast? You just acted semi-automatically. It's not totally automatically, right? It's still guided by what you think is a good idea in the situation in some way, but it's not as if there was a, an explicitly reflective process going on in which you deliberate what to do. But I want to focus on just those particular instances, just this minority of actions in which we do deliberate, in which we do think to ourselves things like, well, what would it make sense for me to do? And this is the kind of mostly mental activity I have in mind. 
So the example I give in the book is, suppose I've graduated from law school, I can join a law firm, or I can uh, pursue the old dream of studying philosophy and, and apply to graduate school in philosophy. Well, there is some mental going on there. It's not like pulling out the mic closer to my mouth. You know, you may think of it in terms of listing pros and cons, although most of us don't do that exactly. It's not obvious what exactly we do. But we do wonder, and we wonder, uh, we ask some factual questions like, how much less money does a philosopher make compared to a lawyer? But we also ask some um, normative, maybe some moral questions, things like, will it be wrong to disappoint my parents and not become a lawyer? And we also ask ourselves something like a really general question. So all told, having considered all of these things together, what should I do, and indeed, what shall I do? So this is a kind of over-dramatized instance of deliberation. This is what I have in mind when I talk about deliberation. So why do I think that moral facts are indispensable for deliberation? Well, I should say that I don't believe that moral facts per se are indispensable for deliberation. So I want to generalize a little bit. I think of moral facts as a particular instance of a wider class of facts that are sometimes called normative facts. Roughly speaking, normative facts are the kind of facts that have an ought in them or that are about reasons of a certain kind. And they include moral facts, but they also include many others. They include things like perhaps some aesthetic facts, perhaps some epistemological ones, things like given your evidence, it makes sense to believe that so-and-so. This seems like a normative fact, even though it's clearly not a moral one. And they also include what we sometimes call prudential facts. These are facts about how best to look after one's own interests along across time. So for instance, if I think to myself things like, it's a good idea to save a little bit more for my pension years and spend less now, that's a normative thought. It's not exactly moral, perhaps. In fact, I don't think that much depends on where we delineate the moral within the normative. But I want to work with a wider category of normative facts in general. And so what I think is indispensable for deliberation are not moral facts, but normative facts. Whether they are also moral is a different matter, and it takes some further steps, and I'm not sure I can get there, at least not without the help of some other arguments. So why do I think that normative facts are indispensable for a deliberation? Well, think about you deliberating there about law school or philosophy, and suppose you settle the deliberation and you decide to do one or the other. Say you decide to apply to graduate school in philosophy. It seems to me that by so settling your deliberation, you are committing yourself to something like the following judgment. All things considered, it makes best sense for me to apply to graduate school in philosophy. And that's a normative fact. Now, I'm not saying that whenever you act, you commit yourself to that. That would be, I think, a case of over-intellectualizing action. But I do think that whenever you deliberate and you let yourself settle a deliberation in such a way, you are committing yourself to such judgments as what it would make all all things considered, what it would make best sense for me to do, or what's a reason for doing what, or something like that. So it seems to me that when you settle a deliberation, you commit yourself to a normative judgment. And even before settling the deliberation, the deliberation itself feels like from within the attempt to find these answers. It doesn't feel like, by the way, the attempt to legislate or create or construct an answer. It feels like the attempt to find an answer that's already there waiting to be found by you. You have to make the decision. The decision is up to you. But which decision is right is not up to you. The activity of deliberation betrays your own belief that it's not up to you. 
So these are the kinds of normative facts that I think are indispensable. They're indispensable in the sense that a commitment to them is part and parcel of the activity of deliberation. So what if somebody were to say, in the university case, should I go to study philosophy? I understand that there are certain facts about what I want to do that I should consider when I'm thinking about a decision to make. Do I want to study philosophy or do I want to study law? In light of the fact that I want to study philosophy, there are objective facts about universities, places that could best make this possible. And there is a fact after I've made the decision, I want to study philosophy at this university. That decision itself is now a fact in the universe. It might seem that we still haven't come upon the normative fact right. in this picture. So the account, as I've described it, seems to be leaving out perhaps the normative fact. If so, where does the normative fact come in such that I need it? Or perhaps if it is in my account and I don't see it, could you explain where oh, that's it is? That's totally fair. The, um, you invoke desires. So a natural view, which is not the robust realist view, would be to think that all we need is a bunch of facts and the agent's desire, the person's desires, and that's it. You have the desires, they sort of color the facts in the color of yeah or nah, and maybe that's enough. And I want to say that sometimes it is enough. So perhaps sometimes when you don't deliberate, when you just act, maybe you just act on desires, and that's fine, and then the normative fact doesn't do much work there. But remember, I want to focus on just these cases where there is the process of deliberation which I think are important. Not ubiquitous and not the majority case, but still important cases. And in them it seems to me that if you let yourself settle at deliberation just by pointing at a desire, or by allowing the desire to decide the case, you are committing yourself to a normative fact. And that normative fact is something like, this desire makes it the best thing for me to do right now. Or makes it the case that that's the thing that makes most sense for me to do right now. So here's a little test to see whether you're committing yourself to this or not. And it's the same test that we employ to think, to test for whether people believe something, even if they don't have it right there in front of their mind's eye in general, right? So if you're driving and you're swerving to the right because there was something on the road, you may be engaged in some philosophical conversation with your passenger, right? So it's not like you are now thinking to yourself, hmm, something there, maybe I should turn the wheel or, but if we then ask you, well, wait, you swerved to the right. Um, do you believe it was a good idea to do that? Or in fact, do you believe there was something on the road that made the case? And then your answer is gonna be something like, sure. And you're gonna wonder why we even asked you. Right? This shows that you did believe there was something there on the road and you did believe it gave you a reason to turn to the right and so Even if you didn't have this belief, as it were, right there, written on your forehead at the time. So let's apply this kind of test here. So you are now deliberating about whether to join a law firm or apply to graduate school in philosophy, and at some point you just look inside really hard and you find a strong desire to do philosophy and you say, okay, that's it then. And then I ask you, well, wait a second, that you have such a strong desire to do philosophy, that makes it a good idea for you to apply to graduate school. Seems to me a response will be sure and you would wonder why I even bothered you with this idiotic question. And I take that to be some evidence that you were committed to this desire giving you a reason or in fact being a reason. That is, you were committed to there being this normative factor. For me, it's hard to see how you can settle a deliberation while still avoiding a commitment to a normative fact. 
You don't have to think in explicitly normative terms in your head, but I do think that you can't avoid the normative commitment of this sort. In a way, you're attributing a certain kind of contradiction to your opponents, right? I mean, let, let's say that I'm the kind of person who is not a moral realist of your kind. Um, you know, so maybe I'm the kind of person who says, look, this talk of objective moral <clears throat> facts is crazy. I mean, you know, sure, like, we have our views about what's right and wrong, but those are culturally relative or something. Different cultures have them. There's no objective truth about this. I think that's a pretty widely held view. And it seems like what you're saying is, sure, someone can say that in theory, but in practice, they're actually committed to the existence of objective, normative facts every time they deliberate about something. The but you're saying it like it's a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> like it's a bad thing to be committed? To attribute to, to one's philosophical opponents this kind of a contradiction. It's not exactly a contradiction, but it's something close. And, and you're right that I do attribute it to non-robust realists. But I think that's what pretty much any philosopher attributes to pretty much any philosopher they disagree with. Because, of course, I don't think of my meta-ethics or meta-normative theory as a... Um, recipe for how to deliberate better. I'm not trying to change the practice. I'm trying to think about that practice and understand it better. And I suspect the practice of deliberation is pretty much uniform across people with different metaethical and metanormative views. <laughs> and uh, where I differ compared to the philosophers who aren't robust realists is not in how we deliberate, but in how we view our deliberation or in how we think about the normative discourse and practice and so on. I'm not saying things like, you know, anti-realists don't deliberate. <laughs> sure they deliberate. And what's true of their, their deliberation is pretty much what's true of mine. But they are wrong in what they think about their deliberation. They fail to acknowledge in their philosophical, if I'm right, they fail to acknowledge in their philosophical theorizing the true commitment to what even they themselves do as they deliberate. Um, but I think that's true across the board. So suppose we're trying to wonder what knowledge is. And so people put forward competing explanations of what knowledge is, or competing accounts or analyses. But of course, everyone agrees that we know these things and not those things, and that we use the word knowledge pretty much the same. I mean, not quite the same, but sufficiently like each other so that we can talk all the time, including using the word knowledge. And so suppose you put forward some theory of what knowledge consists in, and I put forward a different one. And you think that I fail to appreciate in my philosophical theorizing about knowledge the full nature of the commitments of my first order discourse, of the discourse just using the word knowledge. So you're right that I'm accusing my opponents of this. By the way, totally symmetrical. They're accusing me of a similar flaw. Um, and again, as far as I can see, out there across the board in philosophy. So in a way, this takes us right back to our original question about meta-ethics. So to hold a different meta-ethical view than your opponents is not to accuse them of being bad people or bad <laughs> deliberators or anything of the sort, but it is to say something like, you and I share this practice of deliberating, and I'm going to show you that we're presupposing something mm -hmm. in doing that. Um, and that's the structure of the point. Well, interestingly, even to hold on to a different ethical theory, usually doesn't mean that you think of your philosophical opponents as necessarily bad guys. Now, it's not at all trivial to answer the question why, but you can hold to one theory and have someone else hold to another. We're talking about some roughly reasonable theories, not crazy racist ones, say. 
But even if you have very opposing views about the very nature and grounds of morality, you may still converge on, on a lot of judgments. And of course, on top of that, there's also the distinction between what we say and what we do. So even if you're just doing ethics, you don't have to accuse your opponents of being bad guys. And if you're doing metaethics, even less. The question whether there are interesting relations between ethics and metaethics. So for instance, is it the case that any view in metaethics is consistent with any view in ethics? This is itself a controversial philosophical question. But it's certainly true that it's okay to go to dinner with someone who doesn't share your metaethical views. That's fine. So say somebody is entirely persuaded by your arguments and they feel that it must be the case. And David Enoch has thoroughly convinced me it must be the case that we need normative facts for our deliberation. This isn't an entirely unusual result in other fields. We presuppose things for our science, things that are hard to observe. But in thinking about them, we, have, we can imagine something of what they must be like, even the very smallest physical objects. We, we can visualize in some sense what kind of an object or what kind of a fact this must be. Is there something you could say about what these normative facts are like? We've said we need them, mm-hmm. but for the person who wonders, what must they be like? They're not physical facts. No, they're not physical. They're not, <clears throat> can we say something that might bring into view this, this very puzzling notion of what these things might be like? Yes. I'm not sure that I can say much more here, and I don't know whether we need to say much more here. So I want to uh, suggest two scientific examples and think what we think about them. The first is that of genes. So when people started talking about genes, they understood what genes were supposed to do. They understood why we needed them. We needed them to explain things like blue eyes and why some things seem to be common to some families but not to others and things like that. And so they started talking about genes. And then later they found out, hey, it's DNA or sequences of DNA or something like that. And so this, I think, would be the kind of example where what you said applies rather straightforwardly. So we knew we needed something to be like, and then we found out as a substantive empirical finding something interesting about the nature of that thing which we stipulated because we needed it. Great scientific success. On the other hand, perhaps there are some things about whose nature we can't learn much more. I don't know anything about modern physics, but quarks don't seem to be something of the nature of which we have a good grasp. We pretty much know their role in, or anyway, some people do, their role in theories, right? We know where to put them in some equations, but I'm not sure we know more than that. And it's not obvious to me that we need to know more than that. Or perhaps another example would be some mathematical examples. What's the nature of I, right? I in uh, composite number theory, right? Well, you just decided that you needed it because you needed something to put, you know, in place wherever you had the square root of minus one. What more can you say about its nature? not clear that there's anything to be said, not clear that that's a terrible flaw in the relevant parts of uh, mathematics. Okay, so what can I say about the nature of normative facts? I can't say something along the lines of, hey, it's DNA. I don't think that there's going to be that kind of discovery. I can say some other stuff that's not going to sound as exciting. I can do first-order normative theory. We can ask things like, what reasons do we have? Does the fact that someone will suffer give me a reason to do or not to do something? Does the fact that the person who will suffer is not yet born, does that undermine the reason I had not to do it, not to cause suffering, things like that. So we can ask 
questions when we're just doing ethics or normative theory more generally. And then we can learn more about which reasons we have. If this is the kind of nature you're looking to find out about, then we're fine. It's not going to be a substantive empirical finding. It's going to be a substantive normative finding. But if you want much more than that, I don't think I can give you much more than that. The normative facts are you know, the kind of things that state that one thing counts in favor of one other thing and things like that. And that's pretty much it. For normative facts, I think that the relation between why we need them and what they are is much closer than the relation in the gene example. It's much closer to the eye example or maybe to the quark example. Who knows? So you've mentioned a couple of scientific findings, findings about genes or quarks. And someone might say, well, there's one big difference between all of that stuff and the moral case. And that's that in the case of genes and quarks, all right, not everyone agrees about that stuff, but there's a bunch of people who've been working really hard for a long time, and they've come to a consensus about this stuff. And that's a hard-won consensus where everyone who's been working on it agrees on the central things. And someone might say, it is just not like that in the moral case. And that's a reason to wonder whether there really are these facts. We don't seem to agree at all across different cultures, even within cultures. If there are such a thing as moral experts, they don't seem to agree either. So doesn't it seem like the fact of just wide disagreement about the most fundamental and the most basic moral questions should make us think maybe there aren't really objective facts of the matter. Maybe it's different from science in that way. I think that's a legitimate challenge. But as is always the case in philosophy, you have an initially legitimate general challenge. Fleshing it out in a way of, by way of a you know, serious, careful, somewhat rigorous argument turns out to be non-trivial at all. And in fact, you may want to distinguish different arguments there that are somewhat similar and that usually we don't distinguish between them, but that it's really crucial to distinguish between them if we want to evaluate them critically and to see how, how well they do. But I certainly agree that um, disagreement or maybe the nature of disagreement, the fact that it seems to be lasting, that it's not going anywhere, seems to first introduce this analogy between the ethics case and the science case. And second, to pose at least an initial explanatory challenge. So it's important for the realist to have something to say by way of explaining the disagreement. And I think that my main point here is that there are things that can be said in different ways. One way would be to show that there isn't that much consensus in science either. I mean, there is among scientists, of course, but that's because you don't count as a scientist until you agree. Right? I don't know of many creationists getting tenure in physics departments. And that's a good thing, too. But we shouldn't pretend that we have a consensus there. We don't have a consensus. We have a consensus among those whose consent we require in order to count in the first place. Furthermore, if you don't just talk about physics, but if you talk about economics, you have much less by way of a consensus. Right? But we don't, we're not driven to anti-realism, at least not that quickly, about economic facts. Presumably, there's a fact of the matter as to whether higher minimum wages cause higher unemployment. Now show me the consensus there, right? So I think that things are a bit tricky on the scientific side of the disanalogy, but I still want to agree that there is this disanalogy. I think what us realists owe you, then, are explanations of the disagreement and the nature of the disagreement in ethics. And these explanations, if it's going to be a part of a defense of realism, these explanations had better be consistent with realism. 
So let me give you one example of such explanation, which I think uh, is the most promising one, but certainly not the only one. So I take it there's disagreement about, I don't know, let's use some other isms, capitalism and socialism. These are, of course, oversimplifications, but you sort of get the point. Bigger or smaller government, more seriously progressive or less progressive taxation system, things like that. Here's an interesting question. Is there a correlation between people's views on capitalism and socialism on one side and how well they're doing economically on the other? So suppose you found out that the rich are actually tend to be socialist and the poor tend to be capitalist. Okay, that would be really surprising. But if you found out that the rich tend to be capitalist and the poor tend to be socialist, that wouldn't be that surprising. Why is that? Well, because you think you have a ready explanation of the disagreement. The ready explanation has to do with self-interest. Now, that doesn't mean that these people are lying or are being insincere. It's just that we know that you know, we're psychologically complicated creatures and our beliefs are sometimes influenced by all sorts of factors, not all of them good evidence, some of them having to do with our interests. I mean, think about two fans of opposing teams in a, in a sports event arguing over whether, I don't know, it was out of bounds or not. I think that typically both will actually believe their assertion, not always, but often, because what they see and what they believe is affected by their general sympathies and so on. So I think it's a really interesting question, partly an empirical one, though not one that's really easy to check. To what extent our moral judgments are influenced by our interests? If our moral judgments are influenced by our interests to a large extent, then maybe that could explain, again, at least to a large extent, moral disagreement. I mean, you can think about it in terms of specific interests, like the interests the poor have in a bigger government and the interests the rich have in a less progressive taxation system. But you can also think about it more globally, I think, in the following way. Each of us has a very deep psychological interest in not thinking about him or herself and his or her loved ones as bad people. And so each of us also has a reason, a deep self-interested reason, not to think about his or her way of life as a deeply morally corrupt way of life. And so you might expect, just on these self-interest kind of explanations of moral judgments, you would expect people to have beliefs that roughly vindicate their ways of life and that don't judge too harshly their own and their loved one's behavior. So if self-interest does have a strong effect on, on our beliefs in general and our moral judgments in particular, you would expect to see a lot of disagreement. You would expect to see people believing that their ways of life are fine. And this explanation is, of course, totally consistent with realism, with there being facts of the matter, and indeed, perhaps even with there being better and worse ways of finding out about the right ways or the wrong ways of proceeding. Now, this is just one example. It's my favorite one. That's why I gave it. But it's just one example of an explanation of disagreement that's consistent with realism. It doesn't support realism. But I think it takes away at least much of the uh, weight of thoughts about disagreement in undermining realism. And then I still have to support realism in some other way, maybe by arguing from deliberative indispensability, maybe by offering some other argument. David Enoch, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. If you have any questions about this episode, you can post them to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, dot uchicago dot edu slash blogs slash elucidations on the blog you can get background information on the topics we covered and join in the discussion 